Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. This is a weekly program bringing you news from a variety of sources, and this one's being recorded on the 14th of January for the listening week that begins the 15th. Our topics include this week discussions of boardroom diversity, health, politics, the arts, and more. Let's open with two articles on corporate board diversity. This first one I archived back in the summer and now have a chance to read for you. It comes from the Wall, pardon me, the Wall Street Journal, Saturday, Sunday edition, June 12th, written by Emily Bobro. Ursula Burns, the former Xerox CEO on how to make achievements like hers less rare. Ursula Burns became the chief executive officer of Xerox in July 2009, and she admits that she is still irked by the media coverage from the time. As the first black female CEO of a Fortune 500 company, her promotion was historic, not least because she was succeeding another woman, Anne Mulcahy. But most news reports, she says, were more interested in her novelty than in what it took for her to get there. I wanted the stories to go one step further, to try to understand why it's so rare, said Mrs. Burns, 62, over the phone from her home in Manhattan. I wanted them to ask, how did it happen at Xerox? The answer, she says, is that The company had been making diversity a priority for over half a century by the time she became the boss. As Miss Burns explains in her new memoir, Where You Are Is Not Who You Are, which was out June 15th from Amistad, Xerox was based in Rochester, New York, when the city was torn by race riots in 1964. Joseph Wilson, the company's founder, responded by swiftly hiring black laborers and suppliers. Xerox also recruited minority scientists and engineers, including Lloyd Bean, Ms. Burns' brilliant husband, who began patenting inventions for the company in the 1960s. He died in 2019. Vernon Jordan, a civil rights leader, joined Xerox's board of directors in 1974 and was soon mentoring Ms. Burns, who arrived in 1980 as an intern while studying mechanical engineering at Brooklyn Polytechnic, now part of New York University. Ms. Burns says that Xerox was very diverse, at least comparatively. When she returned full-time in 1981 after earning her master's degree in mechanical engineering from Columbia University, quote, I was the only black engineer in my hiring class, but I was one. Most companies had none. Four decades later, Ms. Burns, who left Xerox in late 2016, 
and now serves on the boards of Exxon, Uber, and MIT, among others, is distressed by how few women and people of color have joined her at the top. Just five Fortune 500 companies have black CEOs, and the number will drop to four when Kenneth Fraser, Merck's CEO, steps down later in the summer. A record 41 women now run Fortune 500 companies, but that is still less than 10%. There are still huge companies who have zero diversity on their board, zero diversity in their leadership team, and zero diversity in their supplier base, observes Ms. Burns. Although American firms are hiring more women and people of color at the entry level, not least because women earn the majority of college degrees. She notes that the pipeline slows to a trickle on the way up. Part of the problem, she says, is that corporations often throw money at flimsy concepts like diversity training instead of investing in retaining and advancing talented staff. Ms. Burns's ascent at Xerox came with the support of many champions, but... She says her path could easily have gone another way. She was raised with her older brother and younger sister in a cockroach-infested housing project on the Lower East Side by a single mother from Panama who sacrificed her life literally for her children, says Miss Burns. Her mother died at the age of 49 after a lifetime of hard work, including cleaning offices and taking in laundry. Miss Burns went to Catholic school where the $650 tuition took a huge chunk of the family's income. She worked hard, excelled at math, and earned scholarships to study engineering after learning that the degree ensured the best-paid jobs for new graduates. Her mother often told her, Don't let the world happen to you. You happen to the world. After years of traveling to Japan and the UK to help Xerox plan and build an array of new models, pardon me, an array of new modules and machines, Ms. Burns was in her late 20s when her outspokenness in a meeting brought her to the attention of Wayland Hicks, the firm's second in command. Mr. Hicks, who regularly mentored potential rising stars, urged her to be less blunt and visibly impatient in meetings, and asked her to be his executive assistant. She writes, I learned a lot about leadership by watching Wayland operate. Paul Allaire, Xerox's then-CEO, swiftly poached Ms. Burns to work for him, and then tested her with a series of challenges, including turning around a Texas-based fax business, shifting the company's European operations to London, and overseeing the company's manufacturing and supply chain. Burns said that she was able to put in long hours because her husband, 20 years her senior, offered to retire and stay home with their son and daughter. When Ms. Burns became CEO after years of grooming under Ms. M- Ms. McCul- pardon me, Mulcahy, Xerox was in a precarious position. The country was reeling from the 2008 financial crisis, and the rise of paperless technologies had sidelined paper processing machines and copiers, which forced the company to look for new sources of revenue. In an effort to get Xerox out of a continually shrinking market, 
Ms. Burns cut costs and tried to recast the company as a business services supplier. The strategy paid off, but not enough to make up for declines in its core products. Ms. Burns ended up stepping down after tussling with Carl Icahn, an activist investor, whom she derides for disrupting companies instead of adding value. Xerox's share price is now slightly lower than when she left. Reminder, this was written in June. Look at where he is now and tell me, is that better? I would say not, she says. Mr. Icon, however, notes that Xerox's stock had crested nearly 70% higher than it had under Ms. Burns before the pandemic depressed sales for office machinery. He adds that his investments across his portfolio have enhanced value for shareholders by hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. The Me Too movement and last year's racial unrest have put pressure on corporations to diversify their ranks. To help them along, Ms. Burns now leads the Board Diversity Action Alliance, founded in September 2020 by the Ford Foundation, the public relations and advisory company Tineo, and the Executive Leadership Council, which gets companies to pledge to include one or more black directors on their boards. Dow, Macy's, Starbucks, and UPS are among the signatories. Ms. Burns now believes in mandating diversity quotas for company directors. She admits that she loathes this approach. Quote, it's taking a hatchet to something that needs a paring knife, but insists that it is necessary in the absence of real progress. It also makes good business sense, she argues, given these studies that show that companies with more diverse boards tend to perform better. We're saying there are enough qualified people for this, she says. I don't know what else to do. Wait 20 more years? When she was younger, Ms. Burns chalked up her success to her hard work and smarts. Now, looking back, she wonders where she would be without her mother's maniacal faith in education. Would she have gotten ahead if she hadn't worked for a company that saw promise in a young black woman with a, quote, huge afro? This is why it bothers Ms. Burns when people say she is spectacular. The implication, she says, is that there aren't many others just like her. She says, I meet them all the time. I grew up with some of them. They could be here, too. They just didn't get the chance. The next one comes from the New York Times, posted January 3rd, written by Peter Evis. Board diversity increased in 2021. Some ask, what took so long? Some executives say corporate boards have often overlooked qualified women and non-white people. That may be changing. Paula T. Hammond is a pioneering chemical engineer who has researched cancer and other illnesses at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology for years. Her work, people in her field said, makes her a natural pick to sit on the board of a pharmaceutical or biotechnology company. Yet, it was only in 2020 that Dr. Hammond, who is black and heads the chemical engineering department at her university, became a director of a publicly traded company. 
She said that was my first time being approached to sit on a public board. With their ability to steer companies' biggest decisions and pick key executives, boards wield crucial power in American business and society. They have long been overwhelmingly white and male. Executives and recruiters have often complained that there aren't enough women and non-white people qualified to be directors, a phenomenon often described as a pipeline problem. But under pressure to achieve more diversity in senior ranks from, ex- from, pardon me, from advocates for social change and, at times, their own employees, companies appear to be discovering that a big talent pool of non-white people and women for board seats does, in fact, exist. Some, like Dr. Hammond, have been hiding in plain sight. Directors who are black, Asian, Hispanic, Middle Eastern, or from another non-white ethnic group, now occupy 4,500 board seats among companies in the Russell 3000 stock index, 25% more than they did at the end of 2020 and nearly 50% more than at the end of 2019. Those numbers come from an analysis by ISS Corporate Solutions, which advises businesses on corporate governance, executive pay, and social and environmental issues. Directors from underrepresented groups occupy 17% of board seats, which is up from 14% in 2020. Women of all races have also made gains. They now account for 27% of all directors, which is up from 24%. Dr. Hammond's experience and that of other newly appointed board members suggest there are many more qualified candidates who have been overlooked by companies and executive recruiters. The biggest problem is that people had not spent enough energy focusing on finding people who could be great candidates for boards, said Freeman A. Hrabowski III, president of the University of Maryland and a longtime member of the boards of T. Rowe Price. Anne McCormick. Serving board members have the job of seeking out new directors, and a reason boards are so white and male is that they seek directors who have had experience at the highest levels in corporate America, a group that until the last decade or two has been largely white. Critics of corporate board recruiting also argue that executives tend to prefer recruiting from their own professional and social circles or on the basis of recommendations from their associates and friends. Though the number of white directors fell slightly in 2021, they still account for eight of every ten board members, and six of ten are white men. Dr. Hrabowski, who is black, said that while some companies had worked hard to make their boards more representative of the U.S. population, there was still a long way to go. He added, it's fair to say Companies are being more creative in finding candidates today. The recent influx of non-white and female directors occurred after the killing of George Floyd in May 2020 and the outpouring of anger and frustration that followed. That prompted many companies to pledge to make changes to address racial injustice and inequity. California, where many companies are based passed laws that require greater diversity on corporate boards, and these appear to have had an impact. One passed in 2018 requires 
boards of public companies with their principal executive office in the state to have at least two female directors. And the other law passed in 2020 says boards must have one or more directors from a, quote, underrepresented community, which includes people of several races and ethnic groups and people who identify as gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender. Other states have introduced legislation that would require boards to have a certain number of women. In 2021, black directors were named to fill 535 board seats, raising their total to 1919, 1,919, which was a nearly 40% increase, according to the ISS Corporate Solutions Analysis. They now account for 7.4% of directorships, up from 4.5% at the end of 2019. But directors from other underrepresented groups did not fare as well. The number of Hispanic people on boards, for example, went up 15%, yet they make up only 3% of the total of board members, far shy of their 18.5% share of the population. It is still not, as you can see from the numbers, growing at the level that it needs to, said Esther Aguilera, chief executive of the Latino Corporate Directors Association. She added, We celebrate all diverse appointments, but Latinos are being left behind. When companies have recently gone looking for qualified directors from underrepresented groups, they have often found strong candidates. Take Dr. Hammond. She is a leading cancer researcher and an expert in the materials that help take drugs to specific parts of the body. She is a uh, pardon me. She is a shining example of someone who would have been overboarded a long time ago," said Terry McGuire, a venture capitalist, which is using a term for people who sit on a lot of corporate boards. Mr. McGuire is on the board of Alector a biotech company trying to develop treatments for Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, and other brain disorders. In 2019, he suggested that Dr. Hammond consider joining too, which she did in March 2020. Soon after Alector announced her appointment, several other companies asked if she'd join their boards, said Dr. Hammond. But she declined in part because she felt she would be too stretched Pardon me, stretched too thin. She is also on President Biden's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. Asked why she thought she hadn't been approached earlier, Dr. Hammond said, My guess would be that many knew me but just didn't think about whether I might be helpful from the perspective of a board member. People pushing for greater diversity on boards say companies need to expand their searches beyond current and former senior business executives, and emphasize skills over titles. If you look around, everyone wants a sitting or recently retired CEO who's done very similar things to what their company is trying to do sometime in the last decade, said Jennifer Tejada, the chief executive of PagerDuty, software company, and she's a member of the boards of Estee Lauder and UiPath, another software company. That's a very narrow lens to look through, she said. Under her leadership, PagerDuty's eight-member board has just two white directors. 
She emphasized that she hadn't had to settle for lesser candidates to have a diverse board. Her directors, she noted, include the Dean of Engineering at the University of Michigan, Alec D. Gallimore, who is black, Bonita Stewart, who is a board partner at Gradient Ventures, which is an investment arm of Google, and the first black woman to be a vice president at Google, and Rathi Murthy, who is Indian, and a top technology executive at Expedia Group. To ensure there are enough board candidates from a variety of backgrounds, companies need to do a better job promoting more people from underrepresented groups into senior roles, said some executives. That is especially true of increasing the number of Hispanic board members, said Elena Gomez, the chief financial officer of Toast, a software company. She is also on PagerDuty's board. What we need to do is get more Latinx people into those management roles, and that starts deeper in how you recruit and train. But the push to make boards more diverse has led to a backlash from some conservatives and libertarians. Some are suing to overturn the California laws, arguing that the state is illegally restricting the right of shareholders to select and vote on directors based on merit and skill. A coercive quota is being imposed on these companies, said Daniel Ortner, a lawyer with the Pacific Legal Foundation. The foundation is representing the National Center for Public Policy Research, a group that says it promotes free market policies in a lawsuit challenging the law that requires directors from underrepresented groups. Proponents of greater diversity argue that female and non-white board members bring different experience and knowledge especially about markets and customers than existing directors might not well know, that should, over time, lead to greater profits, higher sales, and better morale among employees. As a mathematician, I always emphasize the importance of problem-solving, Dr. Hrabowski said, the university president, and when you have more people in the room with different perspectives, you solve problems, who solve problems in different ways, you get a broader set of solutions. Dorica Beckett, the chief executive of private health care companies, joined the board of Velocity Financial in 2020. She said her contributions to board discussions had been well received, adding that she can provide expertise that could help Velocity better serve black borrowers. That is something I think I can bring to the executive level, she said. Dr. Hammond said her experience as a department head at a top university had been useful in her work on Elector's Compensation Committee, which oversees pay and hiring of senior officers. I feel I can bring a perspective that involves the human side of managing extremely smart people in ways that are unique. Next, an obituary Remembrance for Robert Holland, Jr., 1940 to 2021. This came from the Wall Street Journal, Saturday, Sunday, January 8th through 9th edition. McKinsey, veteran, led Ben and Jerry's, written by James R. Haggerty. Robert Holland, Jr. grew up in a black family with modest means and high expectations. His mother managed a cafeteria in Albion, Michigan, his father worked in a steel foundry and later sold tailored suits and served on the city council. 
When the family bought a house in a white neighborhood, someone burned a cross on the front lawn. When Robert asked his high school counselor for tips on university applications, the counselor suggested trade schools. Yet the young man was on what he later called a personal quest for success. He managed to earn a mechanical engineering degree at Union College in Schenectady, New York, while starring on the football, basketball, and track teams. While working on an MBA from Baruch College, he talked his way into a job with the consulting firm of McKinsey & Company, where he eventually became the first black partner. In 1995, he made national headlines when Ben & Jerry's Homemade Incorporated named him chief executive. Although he lasted only about 19 months in that job, the company's founders rewarded him with free ice cream for life. He remained busy as an investor, an advisor to PepsiCo Incorporated, and a director of companies including Lexmark International Incorporated and Yum Brands Incorporated. Mr. Holland died December 22nd at his home in White Plains, New York. He was 81 and had Parkinson's disease. I am not looking for sympathy or a badge for the challenges of my childhood, he told students. In a 2010 speech at Wake Forest University, rather, he said, he wanted to convey that what doesn't kill you will only make you stronger. Born April 11, 1940, he was one of five children. At age eight, he became the man of the house when his father was diagnosed with tuberculosis. Mr. Holland told the Boston Globe, his duties included stoking a coal stove before dawn. His parents and their friends took a close interest in his schoolwork. When grades were issued, everybody knew you were carrying a report card, he said. I learned very, very quickly. Do not bring bad grades through the gauntlet. At Union, he was elected class president and joined a Jewish fraternity because most of the others excluded blacks. He met Barbara Jean Davis, a student at Skidmore College, and they married in 1965. Mobile Oil Corporation hired Mr. Holland as a sales trainee. His starting pay, he said later, was 50% lower than that for the rest of my classmates, including the guy who was flunking out. He pursued his MBA in night school and was emboldened to apply to McKinsey, which hired him in 1968. Mr. Holland recalled a gathering at which new McKinsey associates were introduced. The others came from elite universities. When the partner, making the introductions, saw Mr. Holland's less dazzling business degree, he seemed puzzled. Mr. Holland told the Globe, He takes down his glasses to see who this person is. No credentials, no background, no honors. That's my life, not where I'm supposed to be, but where I need to be. Mr. Holland remained at McKinsey for about 13 years, traveled the world to work on consulting assignments, and had postings in Amsterdam and London. He left in 1981 to invest in businesses and help run them. Those included a beer distribution company and an auto parts maker that went bankrupt. When Ben & Jerry's recruited him as CEO, the company was suffering from a drop in sales and software glitches that delayed the startup of a plant in Vermont. Mr. Holland was really smart, said Ben Cohen, one of the two founders, and also had a really kind, good, gentle manner. 
As CEO there, he solved production problems at the new plant and helped restore profitability, but the company continued to lose market share in supermarkets. I think he turned it around, and then we realized that what we needed was more of a marketing focus, said Mr. Cohen. Jerry Greenfield, the other founder, said it was to Mr. Holland's credit that he agreed a different story pardon me, a different sort of experience was required. Unilever bought Ben & Jerry's for about $326 million in 2000. Mr. Holland is survived by his wife, three children, and three grandchildren. He served as chairman of the board of trustees at Spelman College, was a lifelong fundraiser, lifetime fundraiser for the Harlem Junior Tennis and Education Program, and helped create a program in Detroit designed to keep young people in school. Helping others, he said, is an obligation for being alive. Moving now to the root.com. This one comes from the health section there, and it was posted on the 12th, written by Kaylin Womack. New study finds Opioid deaths are rising among black men. A new study by JAMA Network Open has found black men of ages 55 or older are at an increased risk of dying by opioid overdose. U.S. News reported a new study from JAMA Network Open found disparities among races in the rate of opioid deaths. We used to refer to the opioid crisis as a white problem like the crack epidemic, was a black problem in the 80s. But the tides have changed as new studies find rates in opioid deaths have begun skyrocketing in the black community. U.S. News reported that since 2013, black men have had higher death rates among adults around the ages of 55 and older. They also reported the opioid fatality rate among black men was four times higher than the average adult population. In the early 2000s, white people had the highest opioid death rate, according to the U.S. News. However, a New York Times report found, unsurprisingly, that black people were at risk of opioid addiction because they were more likely to receive prescribed pain medication than white people. Dr. Nora Volkow director of NIDA, N-I-D-A, extended the conversation about disparities in treatment to disparities in health care. If you are black American and you have an opioid use disorder, you are much less likely to be prescribed medications for opioid use disorder, she told NPR. She also told them physicians usually don't screen for opioid disorders, which puts research at a disadvantage from having accurate data to get a scope of the issue. Quote from U.S. News, A separate study published in 2020 in the journal Addiction found the growth in opioid-related overdose deaths among African Americans was significantly outpacing the rate among whites, and additional research published in September found that across four states, Kentucky, Massachusetts, New York, and Ohio, the opioid overdose death rate for black adults increased by 38 percent between 2018 and 19, while there was no change overall among other racial and ethnic groups. 
Associate Professor Marianne Mason at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine told U.S. News the rising opioid overdoses among black people could be what the CDC considered the third wave of the opioid epidemic. Mason also noted black patients are less likely to have health insurance, as well as white patients being the majority of those who receive medications to treat opioid use disorder. Again from U.S. News, All of these things sort of coalesce to put black people at a continued disadvantage, says Mason. In terms of the rise in opioid overdose deaths among all older adults, Mason says health care providers may be less likely to screen older individuals for substance use disorder because sometimes the symptoms of aging can be conflated with those associated with opioid use disorder. She says clinicians tend to increase screening for opioid use disorder among oh, pardon me. She says clinicians need to increase screening among older populations. We have to start seeing older people as whole people who may have these issues, says Mason. It's not a surprise that racial disparities in the healthcare industry have ultimately led to black people being handed prescription drugs at a disproportionate rate. Not only do doctors need to listen better to their patients in order to treat them, but they also need to consider that their patients may have already have an opioid disorder before worsening the issue. Next news from politics. This one's written by Noah A. McGee, also from theroot.com, posted on the 12th. Rachel Rollins first black woman to be U.S. attorney in Massachusetts, faces racist threats. Rollins received threats through her social media accounts, telling her to hide her kids. Earlier this week, Rachel Rollins, the former Suffolk County District Attorney, was sworn in as the next United States attorney for Massachusetts, becoming the first black woman to hold that position in the state. Since then, she has faced racist and violent threats from after her confirmation process was questioned by many conservative politicians, including Texas Senator Ted Cruz, according to CNN. Yes, the same man who got in a beef with Big Bird referred to Rollins as extreme and pro-crime and revolutionary. In a story from CNN, the threats against Rollins have been reported to authorities she had she has asked for protection from the U.S. Marshals Service. Rollins was nominated by President Joe Biden in July 2021 and was barely confirmed by the Senate a month ago, with Vice President Kamala Harris casting the deciding vote that put Rollins over the top. The threats started to come in shortly after that. This quote from CNN, The threats against Rollins have prompted calls for the Justice Department to do more to protect people of color in the federal judicial system, which has been increasingly diverse. Rollins joins the most diverse class of U.S. attorneys in the department's history. Dozens of faith leaders and community organizations penned a letter to U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland in December, including the Reverend Jesse, pardon me, Reverend Jerry Brown, associate pastor for the 12th Baptist Church in Roxbury, Massachusetts. Brown said U.S. Marshals should have provided her security as soon as she was confirmed. Brown told CNN, 
We have been through an era where others have been killed because of the stances that they were taking. I believe the threats are coming because the atmosphere feels like they can easily target women of color. Which is normally the case. Women of color are an easy target because they very seldom get any media coverage when violence is directed toward them, which gives off the impression that no one cares. This is unfortunately true in mainstream America. The threatening messages have been posted in the comments of Rollins's Twitter and Instagram accounts and also include threats emailed to her office. One of the threatening comments warned her to, quote, hide your kids. What in the hell is wrong with people? You can disagree with her being nominated, but bringing her kids into it? Too far. Reverend Jerry Brown, an associate pastor at Roxbury, Massachusetts, said some of the threats aimed toward Rollins has appeared on his Twitter feed after he posted a message congratulating her for her historic accomplishment. From CNN, they were saying that she's hot-headed and insane and accused her of identity politics, but what was really disturbing was the one that went directly to her, where they would call her the N-word and the B-word and talked about putting a bullet in her head, said Brown. No wonder she's asking for protection. Also from CNN, Drew Wade, Chief of Public Affairs for the U.S. Marshal Service, said in a statement that the agency takes seriously its duties to protect federal judicial officials, including judges and prosecutors, across the country. Wade declined to comment on Rollins' case. We continuously review security measures for these officials and take appropriate actions as warranted, but for safety reasons, we do not discuss specific security protocols. Which is fair. Can't these people threatening her know how she... Oh, sorry. Can't have these people threatening her know how she is being protected. The Justice Department also declined to comment, according to CNN. Next, I have some articles from the arts world. This first one comes from a recent edition of the Wall Street Journal written by John Anderson. It's a television review for something that appeared recently on, was it PBS? Yes, PBS, and I believe is still available for streaming on Alvin Ailey. A peek behind the curtain of a creative mind. The problem with being Alvin Ailey was being Alvin Ailey. Sometimes your name, pardon me, sometimes your name becomes bigger than yourself, says the dancer-choreographer Carmen de Lavalade of her late friend and colleague. Alvin Ailey, do you really know who that is or what that is? Jamila Wignot's moving and poetic documentary portrait, just titled Ailey, provides answers while making clear that its subject had the same questions. Ailey, who grew up dirt poor in Texas, the son of a nomadic single mother, became not only one of the more significant choreographers of the 20th century, but a man synonymous with black dance in America. Did they love him or what he represented? asks the dancer-choreographer Bill T. Jones, 
Echoing several of the Ailey friends and company members who appear throughout, including Judith Jameson, George Faison, and Masazuma Chaya, Mr. Jones speculates that his one-time collaborator suffered the demon that often torments those who rise from humble origins to great heights. He says rhetorically, If I've gotten this far, I must have pulled one over on somebody, and any day now I may be found out. Mr. Jones is probably the most eloquent and insightful of an unfailingly cogent group of interviewees who populate Ms. Wignott's film, which provides history, anecdotes, pardon me, anecdotes and analysis about Ailey and, as an American master's presentation, seems long overdue. Like most shows in the series, it is a tribute. Unlike most, it is a gloriously expressionistic treatment of its subject. Parentheses. Last summer's program about bluesman Buddy Guy took a similarly adventurous tack. Perhaps it's a trend. Miss Wignot uses archival film in fluidly kinetic ways, deferring to Ailey's own words when she can. Ailey contains a trove of audio interviews that she marries to footage that is often chosen not necessarily for its historical relevance, but for its energy. The New York of the late 50s, when her subject founded the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater, through the late 80s, when Ailey died of complications related to AIDS, is evoked in a torrent of images that pay their own kind of homage to the palette of movement with which Ailey created his landmark dances as well as the times he lived through. It also reflects the turmoil Ailey suffered mentally, medically, and in terms of his fame and place in black culture. The technology is available that can make sound and picture look brand new, even if it's a half-century old. See the Beatles on Disney+. Plus. But Miss Wignot has deliberately maintained the antique quality of much of her materials, including scratchy interviews and melty images, which not only provides ambience, but helps differentiate between eras. This is particularly useful during the sequences that bookend the Ailey portrait and occasionally interrupt it, and involve the creation of a work commemorating the 60th anniversary of the Ailey Company, which took place in 2018, Robert Battle, the artistic director of the troupe, invited choreographer Rennie Harris of the Pure Movement Company to create such a work, and at the beginning of Ailey, Mr. Harris is introduced to the young Ailey performers through whom the new work will develop and evolve throughout the film. We're going to create whatever this is, Mr. Harris jokes to laughs from the dancers, it's going to be good, pardon me, it's got to be good, and it is, and like Ailey itself, seems worthy of its subject. Next we have a profile of an artist living in New Orleans. Currently, this comes from the New York Times. It was posted January 6th, written by Siddhartha Mitter. In the Lower Ninth Ward... An artist renews his purpose. 
Kevin Beasley was invited to create an installation in New Orleans for a few months. Instead, he bought land and met his neighbors. There's a photo I'd like to describe before the article starts of the artist standing in his garden space, which is looks like fall, perhaps. Um, and he is standing next to some tall structures made out of looks like wood crates. Caption says, The artist Kevin Beasley with planters in the garden he has built in the lower ninth ward of New Orleans. They will house vegetables and herbs. Dateline New Orleans. The cookout in the new garden. Guests agreed. Upheld the cultural and convivial traditions of the lower ninth ward. Herlin Riley, a celebrated jazz drummer from the neighborhood, was grooving with his quintet beneath the canopy. Old-timers, friends since high school, held forth at a long table near the stage. The photographers, Keith Calhoun and Chandra McCormick, important local documentarians, were present. Tending chicken thighs and beef, beef ribs from the trailer grill hitched to his truck, Errol Houston conferred the seal of Lower Ninth legitimacy. He said, what you see here is like a normal family picnic with neighbors. There's people here who know my aunts and uncles. The artist, Kevin Beasley, host of the cookout, was chatting with all comers, wearing a black t-shirt adorned with drawings of 38 plant species he intended to grow in the garden. The party was an opening of sorts, the neighborhood reveal for an unfolding creative project that had begun at the invitation of the Prospect New Orleans Art Triennial, but had taken on a life of its own. Beasley was invited to create an artwork in New Orleans for a few months. Instead, he bought this land, cleared it, and began to plant a garden. By now, many local faces were familiar to him. Others were not, and he listened intently to their suggestions and also to their doubts and cautions. The lot at the corner of Forstall Street and North Roman Street had long lain vacant and overgrown, like many here in the wake of Hurricane Katrina in 2005. The neighbors assumed that its new owner was planning to build a house. Another homesteader, or a speculator, or maybe someone with roots finally coming home. Instead, it was Beasley, an artist from New York City. He'd gone door-to-door -door introducing himself. Now, on this mild Saturday in December, there was a landscaped garden, unfenced and welcoming. Children were baptizing it by their play, skipping on the stone paths, rolling down the low mound built to provide gentle elevation. In the middle of the lot, Beasley had installed a pole mounted with LED lights and three Wi-Fi antennas, the only such hotspot in the area. Rhonda Ralph, a full-time caretaker for an ill friend two blocks away, choked up a little. Ralph said, It's like a beam of light shined down from the darkness. I'm just so excited and elated. Beasley, 36, has set himself a high hurdle. He has begun an open-ended project in a city he did not know before in a traumatized neighborhood. He is not making art, necessarily. The creative act is committing. 
staking his resources, already some $80,000 and counting, and his word. After the cookout, he was pleased but pensive, taking in the human measure of what he had started. There is a settling in with the weight of it, with what it really means, he said. In art circles, Beasley is successful, critically and commercially, collected by major museums. He's regarded for his resin sculptures embedded with apparel and other items, and for his performances and installations, notably at the Whitney Museum in 2018, where he hooked an ancient Alabama cotton gin motor to sound equipment and played it like an instrument. These works engage social and material history, race and labor and memory, as well as his family roots in rural Virginia. But in the lower ninth, he was an unknown, in fact, until the triennial invited him to visit and start imagining a special project for its 2020 edition, he had never set foot in New Orleans. And that was three years ago, by the time the triennial, postponed one year by the pandemic, opened last October, Beasley had gone completely off script. He had taken the commission fee, more than doubled it with his own money, and invested in this land. Visiting monthly to immerse himself in the city's culture, he had landed on a realization to contribute anything at all would require raising the stakes. The triennial was rolling with it a bit nervously. That's something we've gotten comfortable with that this project is hard to talk about, Nick Stillman, Prospects Director, had said in October as Beasley was just breaking ground. He went on, Kevin owns the land. Kevin is toiling on the land. Kevin is shaping the land into something that is his own. It wasn't the first time an artist from elsewhere had come to the post-Katrina Lower Ninth, or even, in a strange coincidence that Beasley only learned later, to forestall and North Roman. In 2007, when the artist Paul Chan staged Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot in two neighborhoods haunted by post-Katrina emptiness, out of 300 blocks in the Lower Ninth, he had picked this intersection for the performance. There, Holland Cotter wrote in the Times, the surrounding terrain, no lights, no sound, almost no people, became a character itself. Here, in the back of town, a few blocks from the Industrial Canal flood wall breach, the Katrina floodwaters had exceeded ten feet. Hundreds of homes were demolished, and only a fraction rebuilt. Although the Lower Ninth had overcome a previous calamitous flood from Hurricane Betsy in 1965, Katrina was more severe, and so were the now well-documented government failures that followed. The article breaks to show four drawings done by Beasley, which are stunningly realistic. It says, Kevin Beasley's drawing on the Lower Ninth, based on snapshots he'd taken while scouting this property, were are on view through January 23rd at the Contemporary Arts Center. Drawing, he said, helped him form an intimacy with the terrain. Continuing. As the Tulane University professor Andy Horowitz writes... The storm provided an occasion for racial and economic inequalities to be sharpened and ordained by policy and practice. The Lower Ninth has regained one-third of its pre-Katrina population, compared to 85% in 
for the rest of the city overall. Most of the Lower Ninth was drained and developed following the construction of the canal in the 20s. For decades, it was a bustling black neighborhood. You had life, said Calhoun, the photographer, who grew up there in the 60s. The men I grew up around were mostly dock workers and most owned their properties. Now it seems like the juice is gone. Its hallowed artistic history includes Sister Gertrude Morgan, the self-taught mystic painter, as well as Fats Domino and other music luminaries. It remains home to black maskers, Mardi Gras Indians, like Big Chief Demond Melancon, pardon me, and other cultural custodians. Still, the storm's stark aftermath created an assortment of post-Katrina initiatives. Some are hyper-local. Calhoun and McCormick founded the L9 Center for the Arts in 2007. While its gallery is now dormant, they still run youth photography workshops. The Lower Ninth Living Museum, run through the foundation of another civic leader, Leona Tate, opened in 2011. The first edition of Prospect fanned projects into many neighborhoods in 2008, including eight in the Lower Ninth Ward. Mark Bradford built Mithra, a huge ark made of plywood panels covered by tattered posters. Wangichi Mutu built a ghost house, frame, and supported its subsequent completion as a real home for Sarah Lasty, who had lost her house to the site, on the site to the flood. Yet, 16 years after Katrina, artist interest in the Lower Ninth has slowed, Prospect had run over budget in 2008, and later editions pared back in scale. New art spaces have opened, but the lower ninth remains at the margin. The poverty rate exceeds 34%. Social needs dwarf the significance of any art venture. The key difference, said Calhoun, was that Beasley had invested. He's not making art that's going to come for three months. It's important that he owns it. On a sweltering October afternoon, Constance Fowler, a neighbor and a community activist, had led Beasley on a walking tour of a garden and park spaces near his property, she said, so Kevin can know what he's up against. Cautionary evidence abounded. One gardener never got its water, pardon me, one garden never got its water line, and it closed. Another only got going once neighbors brought in buckets of water and eventually exhausted their patience. A pocket playground lay untended, its portico decaying and drinking fountain inactive, and the sign remained saying, dedicated to the children of the Lower Ninth Ward, with a corporate sponsor logo. Interspersed with other homes and open lots were the Brad Pitt houses, as people call them, identifiable by their solar panels and slightly edgy design. The non-profit Make It Right, founded by the actor built 109 houses in this area between 2008 and 2016 based on designs from famous architects like Shigeru Ban and Frank Gehry. The homes were then sold to new or returning residents, but they soon were beset by construction flaws and health and safety hazards. A few have been demolished, some are vacant, and the whole venture is tangled in litigation. Beasley got the message. He said, there's real evidence of how certain efforts have failed the community. 
Beasley's project is largely utilitarian. For now, he said, the garden is a resource that will provide free internet, a place to relax, and in time, vegetables from the raised planters and fruit from the citrus trees. I could argue that it's a sculpture, the entire thing, he said, but that debate is less significant than what the thing is actually doing. He plans to share, likely on a website, documentation of his journey, listing de- listings, deeds, tax claims, property histories, to make transparent the real estate workings in a vulnerable neighborhood shocked by disaster and eyed by speculators, and the challenges to preserving or rebuilding black ownership. It will not be an easy task. At the cookout, India King Robbins, possibly Robbins, pardon me, who lives a block away, who is a media and education director, nonprofit director. She spoke of her reservations. Beasley was a new arrival with an idea and no guarantee of follow-through. I want to make sure that we're not being burdened with another space that we have to take care of, said King Robbins. It's great to have space that's going to bring green life, vegetables, protect us from flooding. That's all awesome and appreciated. But at what expense does it come to the community if, in the long run, it's their work? A test of character ultimately is the purpose that Beasley has found. There's something different about putting your word on the line, he said. He had pushed Prospect to support and surrender control of a project outside of its comfort zone. That was the easy part. The more profound challenge was to himself. He said he found it bracing and refreshing. I don't remember the last time I've knocked on strangers' doors to introduce myself as a person. There's a lot to discover about what it means to have real stakes in something that has a direct connection to the audience, to the people, and not know if it's going to fail. This author, Siddhartha Mitter, writes about art and creative communities in the United States, Africa, and elsewhere. That brings me to the end of our time. Thank you for joining us. This was the Black Experience Hour, and please tune in to all of our programs.